Hey everyone, and welcome to the 55th episode of The Liam McClellan Show. This episode was recorded on June 23rd, 2021. All right, today's guest is my high school honor civics teacher, Lee Deming. I wanted to bring one thing up since it wasn't mentioned in the interview, and that's that Mr. Deming is largely responsible for me becoming a libertarian, but he also helped coach my graduating class to win the Center for Civic Education's We the People Montana State competition, and also win Montana's first ever award at nationals. You'll hear that competition brought up later in the interview for more context, but I figured I'd bring that up because we didn't dive into it. I hope you enjoy this interview, and now that Mr. Deming's retired, I expect that I'll have him on quite a bit. Here he is. All right, so I have a really awesome interview today. It's with someone that is pretty important to me and someone I consider a mentor and a friend, um, someone who helped with my development as a libertarian and just kind of where I'm at now politically and intellectually and everything. Uh, it's Mr. Deming, uh, Lee Deming. He was my my teacher my senior year of high school in civics. Um, and now, Mr. Deming, I, I'm assuming that just if there's anyone who's following me on social media and they see this post and they say, oh, wow, Liam is interviewing Mr. Deming, they're, they're going to listen to this. So uh, I figured that we would kind of talk about who you are and what your beliefs are. And I also assume that a lot of people maybe thought that you were a Republican while going through school. So can we talk a little bit about um, your political beliefs and how you became a libertarian? Yeah. Sure. So uh, when I first started teaching, uh, I grew up in the era of Vietnam War. And uh, so starting teaching in 1978, uh, we pretty much knew throughout uh, the last few years of the war during the time I was in high school that uh, the government was lying to us about a lot of stuff. And so I was pretty skeptical of government um, at all levels. But I think that's the reason why I was. And uh, even though I voted Republican because I didn't really know there was a libertarian option at the time, and there wasn't uh, most of the time, um, I'm pretty socially conservative. And so uh, I think the first part of my career, I was a Republican or uh, considered myself to be, even though I never joined any party. Uh, and occasionally I'd vote uh, independent and I've written a lot of candidates in. Uh, but uh, I guess the first couple of decades of my career, yeah, I was a Republican for sure. And then when I when I met you, I'll say it was kind of interesting because how I became a libertarian, I think I woke up to the whole, I mean, logic of, or I broke out of partisanship and I saw you would criticize Trump, but also criticize Obama. And I got to see you criticize Obama first. I think it was Obamacare or something like that. And that kind of trapped me. And I was like, oh, well, he must be on my side. But then like a few days later, you, you said something bad about Trump. So that got me pretty intrigued. Um, but later in our conversations, you, you started to bring up Ron Paul. You had pictures of Ron Paul in your classroom. And I didn't know who he was at the time. But um, did Ron Paul kind of influence you? I know a lot of people became libertarians during his election. About 20 years ago, my... Uh... My brother actually asked me, have you ever heard of this Ron Paul guy? <laughs> and I had, but um, I, I didn't know much about him. And the only thing I knew about him was that uh, he was some crackpot guy that was always worried about the Fed and, and uh, didn't like wars. Well, I didn't know much about the Federal Reserve Bank either. Um, uh, even though I don't know if you knew this, I did work for those guys for a while. So <laughs> the Federal Reserve <laughs> Yeah, uh, I didn't have a very important job, obviously, but I did work for them. I didn't know anything about them, really. Uh, but the more I looked into Ron Paul and I spoke to my brother at length about him, uh, the better I liked him. And so uh, he was pretty easy for me to to support in the 2008 election campaign, to be honest with you. So um, that's kind of where I turned, uh, particularly the anti-war stuff. I'm you know, growing up in that Vietnam era, I think I, I got sick of the excuses that people used to use for our involvement in Vietnam. Uh, and I had a couple other unique experiences. I knew some, some Hmong tribesmen that we had in uh, class in one of the places I taught. And one of them I still consider a very close friend today. 
And he was related to one of the most famous, if not the most famous anti-communist uh, generals in the world. And his name was Vang Pao. So anyway, I, I think uh, I, I knew quite a bit about um, a lot of the wars the United States was in. And I, I started going through using the same litmus test as Vietnam and, and all of the wars we've been involved in. And I just, uh, they're all a bunch of crap as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, definitely. And then, uh, yeah, so that's pretty interesting. So you, I, I've told people that you're a public school teacher and I've, I've had to tell people, you know, like I became a libertarian within the public school system. Like, like luckily I, I found a libertarian my senior year of high school. Um, and it's kind of funny. They're like, they're all surprised, but now it's, it's even funnier because you also work for the federal reserve system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A libertarian. What, what was your job? Yeah, so all I did uh, was, uh, the job was called a mail clerk slash driver. So all we did is deliver the mail. Uh, but uh, it was at the Federal Reserve Bank of Helena, uh, Minneapolis branch, excuse me, Helena branch, Minneapolis uh, Federal Reserve. And um, I spent quite a bit of time there and they worked with my college uh, schedule. So we'd go to work at five in the morning and then we'd leave work to go to class and then we'd finish up. So I'd get 40, 50 hours a week at that job because they worked with my schedule and also uh, do a full load of classes at Carroll College. Wow. Yeah, so now to get into like just the education side, how long were you a teacher and um, when did you find out that you wanted to become a, a teacher, I guess? Uh, so I finished my 43rd year this last year, um, retired. And when I went to college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And it was really expensive. <laughs> and so I had to figure out something with the things that I was interested in. And I asked my dad, I said, what do I, what do I do? What do I study? He says, well, just uh, find some stuff you're interested in. So I was interested in history and political science. And so uh, there wasn't much else I could do, but be a teacher. And then uh, I also kind of wanted to be a, a coach, a basketball coach, which I was for a while. Uh, but the academics uh, just drew me in, to be honest with you. I, I really like uh, athletics. I really like coaching. But uh, there's really nothing like spending some time with some kids who are adults or just almost adults and hashing out history, the real history and uh, politics. Um, that's That's been an awful fun career to be honest with you yeah and i think that the way that your class was structured at least when when i was in it and that was in 2018 was just very unique and i think what you were able to bring with like uh the center for civic education and stuff like that and um I, i've always told you and we've talked about this in the past that like the freedom that you gave to ask questions and for us to pursue things that we were interested in. I think that that's like, it, it's, it's the best way for people to, to learn. But um, can you kind of talk about what that class structure was like? And I guess, how long, how long did you, were you in We The People? And um, can you explain what that program was like? Yeah, so it's uh, two decades, essentially, I, I spent in that program. And the Center for Civic Education sets up a system of class and they do some other programs as well, but it's called the We the People program. And uh, what they they do is they gear it towards uh, district, state, and then national competitions in civics. And the the book is structured to be set up to have uh, six units. And essentially, what you're talking about throughout the entire text is, as you well know, the history, uh, philosophy, and application of constitutional principles. And so each unit, each of the six units has a different um, topic. And your topic, unit one, um, that is still my favorite unit, is really the philosophy behind the Constitution. And, you know, teachers and kids have told me over the years, teachers in the We the, we the People uh, program have told me over the years that that's the one they like the least because it's too much philosophy. Well, how do you <laughs> how do you make sense of the rest of it if you don't have the philosophy down? I don't understand that. So, and, and the other thing I don't understand is that if, if you don't have a good grounding in that, 
do something about it. <laughs> you know, if you're a teacher and you're supposed to teach these kids these principles and you don't know it, you need to, you need to learn. And so I, I think a lot of people, uh, teachers, it's tough to get teachers involved in the program because I think it's an awful lot of work. So um, I used to spend at least 100 hours, at least 100 hours in the summer times uh, kind of getting ready for classes. Um, and so when I walk in there, I could answer most of the questions you guys had. Uh, but remember, the way that I structured that class was to rely on your curiosity and your reason rather than mine. You know, my role is to kind of guide you to your own answer rather than to tell you what mine is. And you remember, probably remember that pretty well. Yeah, I do. I mean, because I didn't even really find out that you were a libertarian until, I mean, because you you were very clear that you would be open with your beliefs and, and you weren't necessarily doing it to like um, press them on people. It was just like, this is what I believe in, and hopefully you can learn from that in, in a way. But it was also... I didn't, I didn't learn that you were actually a libertarian until maybe halfway through the school year. And that was because I was just constantly asking you questions and trying to get to this point and, and building a foundation towards that. But I mean, it really was my own questions um, that, that kind of helped. Uh, and then you, you were just helpful in answering them. But I mean, yeah, the, the class was really great. And, and the philosophy section was my favorite and why I'm um, majoring in philosophy now. And I think that it's probably the most important part about libertarianism. There's, there's a big, uh, there's a big conflict right now about whether or not people are on the ground um, in the libertarian party right now, if they actually understand the philosophy behind it. And I think that that is a serious problem and the way that libertarians can differentiate themselves from Republicans and Democrats is to ground the party in philosophy. Otherwise you're just another coalition, you know, um, reacting to whatever that day's issue is. But um, yeah, to talk more about like the system itself, and maybe why you because when when I talked to you about when you would ever retire and stuff like that, you said, when you got bored of it, or when you no longer had fun. So I'm, I'm just curious, were you seeing um, something within the system that, that you no longer liked? Uh, or was it more of a personal decision? Uh, no, actually, I, I could have easily taught another 10 years, particularly uh, as I think, uh, and, okay, this is gonna, this is gonna sound uh, different, but uh, I think that kids are getting more sophisticated rather than less. The upper end kids, uh, like yourself, the kids who are curious, have intellectual curiosity, um, they're, their understanding is frankly pretty weak, but their ability to find information is, is unbelievably sophisticated. You know, I'd be talking about something, I can't remember this guy's name. Uh, before I had the sentence out, somebody had the answer. They knew who it was. And so it wasn't just a matter of getting the name, they would find out about the person. That's happened for a number of years and increasingly I see that in the classroom. So clearly I could have been there longer. Um, I was enjoying every second of it. And thankfully, I had a, a really, really good bunch of students this year. Uh, and again, particularly in our civics class, I was very happy with their effort and uh, their knowledge base. So, um, but I uh, came to the conclusion that uh, I'm still relatively young and I, I wanted to be able to do some stuff, you know, camp and hunt and fish while I was still healthy. Yeah, I'm still relatively healthy, so uh, and be more about politically, maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, you know, the other thing I want to make sure I, I say here uh, before I forget, uh, I got to tell you, thank you for helping to prepare those kids for our competitions last few years. That's been very, very helpful. And I've really appreciated it. You've been the most consistent person to help me on that. I know you like it, but uh, it's, it's been pretty important to me to see you do that. So thank you. Yeah. Now, the other thing I wanted to make sure you understood is that uh, I didn't really do a lot uh, except to give you guys the like permission to go figure out on your own the things that you believe rather than anything else. And so 
I know that works well for a lot of students and it clearly worked well for you. Uh, but remember, you would ask me a question and typically I would, I would make, make it clear that I wasn't gonna give you the answer, but I could direct you to an answer that fit your philosophy. And so my role was to, to guide rather than teach. And that, as I said, that has, that's worked very well for the right student. It doesn't work well for everyone. You know, I remember several times in class, uh, we get questions and I wouldn't answer. Like the one question, you know, well, I asked you uh, about uh, World War II, you know, did we have to fight World War II? And I said, well, why did World War II start? So I answered that with a question. Now, now you got to go find out why, why World War II started. And now you're going all the way back to World War I. And you can follow it back to the history, throughout the history of the United States. And so I think uh, that's, I want to make sure I said that, that uh, it wasn't any great insight on my part. It was the fact that I kind of let you guys have your free reign. And, uh, and look what you did. You turned into a philosophy major and you've got a podcast and you're, into the Libertarian Party of Montana and Mises Caucus. Yeah, I think it worked. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely like your, because you're definitely responsible for a lot of it in the way that you you were able to, um, the at least the environment that the class like provided to inspire, I guess that. And and it was very, I mean, you're definitely right that you you would never give me the answers to. I know there were many times where, like I, I came to a conclusion that the, I remember this, pretty vividly in unit four because I was in two different units in, in we the people for for the listener they um, unit four was about the political structure of of the U.S. government and um, we, we were just talking about like the conflicts and like the the built-in maybe problems with the constitution if if there were any and I remember I I really I, I can't remember what the question was but we were preparing for um, the competition. And I remember my eyes got so wide because uh, essentially the whole idea was about compromise and whether or not um, compromise is good or bad. And then you just told me, like th there was something that led me to the conclusion that the entire system, especially based off of the Philadelphia convention was built on compromise between these two parties. And, and that might be where the flaws come from and it, it was constantly just stuff like this where you it, I was asking questions and and really it was it was up to the student to see whether or not they wanted to take advantage of that yep that's exactly right that's you you've captured it for sure and yeah. I'll be honest with you uh 20 years ago I I didn't have that um I was I didn't do that with the students uh it, that was more of an evolution on my part where I got to the point where uh, I wanted the kids to find their own answers. But before, 20 years ago, when I first started in there, I was, I was trying to give everybody all the answers and I just didn't have them all, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is too bad, I guess, but I think it works out better when you guys find your own. Yeah. And then uh, for the listener who might not understand what he was saying earlier, like with, with all my help, um, I would go in and uh, help judge these kids. Or if they had any, any questions, I would point them um, in a direction. And I'm, I may have given my bias a little more than Mr. Deming does. I, I would literally just say, yeah, look here, or this is what I think. Um, but what, what's great, and, and he's right about these students, is like, there were some people who were pretty left-leaning that I, I really respect who you know, would combat me a little. And, and I think that that was so great. That's what was so great about the environment in this class. Um, but I, I've talked to you personally, and, and we were going to have this conversation with some of the LP people, um, just about the problems that you see in the public education system right now. And I don't know how much you want to get into that. But uh, you, I know that you believe in, in homeschooling and stuff like this. And that might seem a little interesting um, to some people who are like, well, you taught in, in the public education system for so long. Why would you tell people to homeschool? So uh, do you want to dive into that conversation? 
Yeah, we can do that. So I, I do think that your public education is going to be rife with those who uh, really believe in socialism as as a way of life that the, we should impose, um, get rid of capitalism or uh, heavily regulate capitalism, um, that the state should make all the decisions for us. I mean, our, our union, uh, this is an interesting story and it's, it's public, everybody knows it, but our teachers union at our district, uh, the superintendent wanted to follow the mandates of the governor and the governor lifted the mask mandates for schools and our union threatened to sue the district wow to keep following the uh, national guidelines which included uh, still masking students in schools and so the district wanted to let the kids stop wearing their masks and the union said no we don't want that you know so uh, just imagine seeing a bunch of kids for a, and we had about a week where we didn't have to have what masks walk in. Uh, thank goodness we're done with the masks. Everybody's uh, thrilled about the masks get being gone. And now then you have to tell your kids to get, put them back on again. You know, so, so that was led by uh, some members of our teachers union. Now um, I don't think there's a clearer, example of how badly we have turned in this country where the state can impose those kinds of restrictions on kids who are at zero risk zero risk now statistically there's no way that that and, and in fact um, those kids 17 or 18 years of age uh, they're not going to get sick they get sick, they're only going to be sick for a couple of days. It's not going to kill them. And so uh, the mask mandate, uh, the this lawsuit was probably to protect the teachers rather than the students. And so uh, I, I find that to be, frankly, uh, cowardly. Anyway, that's a pretty good example of the power of the state and in people's minds that uh, the state then must impose that. And if not, then... The, in our case, the union was going to, you know, ruining everybody's livelihoods, uh, locking us down for 18 months or whatever it was. Uh, it, is there a better example of, of the lunacy of state control than that? Yeah, there isn't as far as I'm concerned, you know, unless you want to talk about wars. <laughs> well, what about so because this, this is an interesting topic about about unions and um how they might operate and hold control over districts and stuff like that. Like how could they possibly feel as if they have the authority like that? I know that they, they run off of kind of like a state-based system where, where they require people to pay dues. Um, but I don't really know much about how they work. And as someone you, you had to participate in one, right? Yeah. In fact, uh, I was on the negotiating committee for a while. I'm pretty involved in the union participated in a strike uh, 20, almost 30 years ago. Wow. Yeah, so the union and the district had a, uh, this is the way I understand it. So if I have some of the details wrong, I, I stopped paying attention there for a while. Uh, that the district and the union signed a memorandum of agreement where the two parties said that they would follow the, I believe the CDC guidelines. So since the governor lifted the mask mandate, but the CDC guidelines were the same, the union was in a position to win a suit against the district saying that the district had violated that, that agreement. And so uh, as far as I know, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I got that, you know, that sequence of events right, uh, the district really was going to lose that because they assigned that. You know, so uh, there's a lesson learned right there. You want to be careful of the kinds of agreements you sign. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that's how it worked out. I, I'm just interested. Were, did you ever have a teacher or someone within a union um, 
respond poorly to you because of your political beliefs? Or did, did that ever happen within the public education system? When I, I know this happened when you would talk to other teachers and in, in we the people, but did it ever happen locally? And then if not, we can talk about those cases. Yeah, so there was some pushback in the teacher's lounge and um, uh, very few times officially, obviously, you know, just uh, some some banter, but uh, there was, there's been a couple of teachers who really took exception to my way of uh, viewing the world, even though they didn't really know exactly, like you thought I was a Republican mm -hmm. uh, for a while. And that's what a lot of people think. And in fact, I vote Republican most of the time. Uh, but I'm, I'm way more libertarian than I'm anything else. Mm -hmm. Now, these people don't know that. And so they make assumptions. And then I, I've had, <laughs> I've had several comments about uh, the fact that the social studies staff at the high school is, uh, let me say, uh, it's too bad they're all conservative. <laughs> well, in the, in the first place, how do you know that? I, I might say that in in this teacher's lounge mm. around adults. But, you know, like, as you said, I try not to tell very many people where I stand politically in class. So imagine someone saying that. Too bad the social staff is conservative. Well, you, they, you don't know. He maybe he's conservative. I don't know. And I fish with that guy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, Mr. You know, I better not name names. We should probably bleep those guys out. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah. some of the other teachers, you know, I, I, I hunt with one, uh, spent a lot of time with him. No idea how he votes. Yeah. Don't care. <laughs> so, uh, but there have been um, some, there's been some teachers who have pushed back pretty hard. I lost uh, a couple of friendships over my political views where I, I just dug my heels in and said, you're, no, you're wrong. That's and I can prove it. Yeah. And that was the end of that. You know, yeah. and I had another teacher. This is another reason why I think that homeschooling is a is probably an option for people. We had a staff member who uh, the allegation was I talked to some students and they would come in. This happened over the course of several years. They come into my class, my inner civics class, crying. And of course, you know, I'm a teacher, I'm not completely heartless. The first thing I want to say is, come on. Uh, <laughs> you know, buck up. But uh, then you say, well, what's the, what's the problem? Well, he did it again, Mr. Deming, he did it again. And then, all right, no names. So this, this teacher uh, would tell the students, this is the allegation. Now, again, I, I never saw it happen, that they, they couldn't say, God bless you if somebody sneezed in their class. Wow. Um, and it was pretty hostile environment for uh, people of faith. So if you're a person of faith and you had a teacher in the public school system um, that was running down people with faith constantly, you could see why homeschooling would be an option there. Yeah, and I think that it looks pretty clear that at least some of the policy proposals, or at least the way that the left has been looking it's it, it seems as if they're going to try to come after the religious groups uh within the public education sphere or not allow them to have uh private schooling at all which is very concerning yeah i think there's been a war on a religion now for a good decade uh, uh, it's been blatant and it's getting it's getting worse it's getting more directive i've seen you know the supreme court you know, I've talked about the Supreme Court a lot. <laughs> the Supreme Court um, just made a, just had a ruling where, well, I, we talked about it, right? Where the, uh, oh, what was the name of the case? I can't remember. Do you remember the name of the case? I can look it up really quick. But anyway, the, um, the Catholic Church can say, no, we're not going to, we're not going to work with uh, same-sex couples with uh, adoption agencies. We're just not going to do it. The Supreme Court supported that, said, well, no, you don't have to. That's a hopeful sign, I think. You know, um, 
nobody should be forced to work with somebody they don't want to, particularly if that group uh, violates their beliefs. Yeah, I know. I know we talked about the Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn versus Cuomo, I believe. Is that the one? I don't remember. It don't matter. Oh, Catholic Social Services. That sounds right. Yeah. But yeah, it, it does look very promising. And, and you and I have had a lot of conversations. And what, what I find interesting about libertarianism, and, and I was going to make this point earlier, is um, so on the point of like calling you a conservative, for people who might not understand what libertarianism is, um, it might be interesting to hear that like you can be a conservative, like socially, but politically libertarian, just because uh, politically you believe that that you shouldn't be able to use force against others. Whereas, uh, so it's kind of like live and let be to an extent, as long as you're not harming other people, but you can still live a conservative lifestyle within that. Um, you're just not gonna prohibit other people's lifestyles. But, but what I was gonna say, about this in particular is that um, with Supreme Court cases, I found that you and I will always get in the, these conversations where we're like, do we support these Supreme Court cases? Or do you think this was a good ruling? And we're always caught, we're, we're like, yeah, like at, at face value, yes, but there are all these principles that we have to follow. And it's like, we're kind of outside of this paradigm. It's like, we're not even thinking within the same system that, that others are working in. And, and I found, that that has been the best thing about this philosophy and being able to talk to you about it because um, the most engaging conversations I've had have been with you because you are extremely knowledgeable about this. So, and you know, the principles. Yeah, well, the principles are, are important. Like you said, I, I can't imagine that. See, libertarianism to me is, is a common sense way of looking at the, at the world. So violation of the NAP, uh, that, that's taxation is theft. Those are, those make sense to me, uh, which by the way, I, I wrote taxation is theft on my marker boards uh, <laughs> and left it up there all year. <laughs> and I didn't get any pushback. Nobody said anything. Uh, I, I finally said it out loud one time just to see if anybody was paying attention. And half the kids uh, in the class nodded their head. That's hilarious. I think you either said something about uh, you you had taxation was theft on the board our year, and then you also wrote something either about George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, that that may have been a little controversial. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, under Abe Lincoln's portrait, um, I had uh, worst president question mark. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I got some pushback on that. One kid actually raised his head. He says, "Mr. Deming, that makes me mad." And I said, let's talk about it. Yeah. You know, and so we got a 20 minute conversation, 20, 25 minute conversation about Abraham Lincoln. I got to say all kinds of terrible things that Abraham Lincoln did, you know, and shut that kid's worldview down. Not that that's what I necessarily wanted. I just wanted him to know the truth. So you can go ahead and say that Abraham Lincoln is a great president, but you have to acknowledge that he had some problems like the 600,000 people that died in the civil war. Whereas I think Brian McClanahan said, uh, the South chose secession. Lincoln chose war. Well, so isn't he a bad guy? Yeah. Well, I think the, the biggest teller like that, that might be a little um, uh, time sensitive or, or relevant to what's going on right now is with the, the Juneteenth thing that I think that the whole conversation around Juneteenth was kind of like, um, because the whole history behind that is that during Juneteenth, um, when, when the soldiers came in, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation finally applied to them, right? So mm -hmm. it was like these slaves were finally free because of the Emancipation Proclamation. But if people just looked a little further, they would, they would realize that these slaves were not the last slaves to be freed because the Emancipation Proclamation only applied to states in rebellion. So it's like if the guy really was who these people really want to say he is, why didn't he try to do anything to the northern slaves and then you start to ask questions like habeas corpus and and all of these things that kind of blew my mind in that class and i think the textbook actually kind of covered a little of the little of those things so i, I was kind of impressed by that too yeah the textbook is, is actually quite good it it depends on the interpretation of the teacher you know i i would tell uh parents 
make sure that you get your kids into a We the People program. If they don't have one at your school, make sure you start one. I'm, I'm actually not sure that's a great idea anymore. You know, because, uh, and I have seen some of the people in Center, Center for Civic Education speak, and I haven't been terribly impressed with their libertarian principles. <laughs> so they're, they're statists, right, yeah. to the ground. And you can argue with them all day about Abraham Lincoln, and they will, well, he freed the slaves. Well, no, he didn't free the slaves. He didn't free a single slave. Yeah. Right. Uh, and he wasn't really somebody who was against slavery. He, he said over and over again, um, uh, black people and white people, uh, Negroes and, and white people can never be equal. He said that uh, he wanted to send him back to Africa, the yeah. great emancipator. And then he has that one quote about if, if I uh, could preserve the union without freeing one single slave, I would, if I could preserve the union by freeing them all I would or something like that um so I mean he's stating his goals pretty clearly right there mm -hmm. yeah there's no question that the the guy really wasn't an emancipator and that the emancipation proclamation was a war uh you know uh war effort it wasn't really uh, humanitarian at all yeah so, yeah so anyway uh we're was that a different topic? Did we jump into something else? Yeah, I don't know how we got to that. I think we probably started with education somewhere. Yeah. So, uh, oh, yeah. So I, I really like the program. I like the text. We the people in Center for Civic Education. And I think, I think uh, Chuck Quigley, who started that, is just a great guy. And he's a good man. Uh, however, I think also that, that again, if you have... Uh, a teacher who, you know, whose worldview is that capitalism is bad and democracy rules. Um, I, I think you're in for a lot of trouble because I think that's the interpretation that most people put on the constitution and our system today. And I, it's, it's inaccurate. It's wrong. It's, it would horrify all of the framers virtually except maybe Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> so, yeah. That, that, that is another takeaway that I, I took from your class was how bad Hamilton was. And I was really happy to, to see, and I actually wrote Kevin Gutzman about this to see if he knew about it. Um, Hamilton, it, it was found out that they, that he may have owned slaves, which, and this was just happened like this year. And I loved it so much because it was like, these people could no longer hold him as, as like their saint, you know, like it was like, they would always point to everything that he he said, and kind of like take all of these terrible principles um, from Hamilton simply off of this, this basis, but they no longer have that anymore. So they're all on equal footing. Um, and, and he's like, yeah, I'm not surprised. And, and meanwhile, they're, they attack Jefferson. Yeah, for sure. Even though, and I didn't realize Hamilton had slaves. Are you sure his, his, uh, yeah, I haven't heard that story, so I don't really know what you're referring to. Yeah, was, maybe it, send me that, would you? Yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you afterwards, and I'll link to it if I find it. Um, and I don't know if it was definitive proof, but they're they're starting to think that he may have had slaves. Yeah, why wouldn't that throw a monkey wrench into everything? Yeah, and good, and good. I mean, uh, statism kept people enslaved for decades, right? And statism attempts to keep everyone as uh, slaves of the state uh, forever. So that's kind of, you know, you, you, don't, you don't have shackles on, but you're a slave to the taxation, you're a slave, just a slave to the state, to the, to the government. Uh, that's a terrible way to live. Yeah, and I think, I, I honestly think that people might wake up to it if, if at least people can like point to the source of, of all of this, because I mean, what we're going through right now, I, I think it should be pretty clear, like in 2020 and now 2021 with Biden, if I swear, if we go through another um, economic crisis without people pointing to the Federal Reserve or at least questioning them, I, I have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> no hope. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, they're uh, deliberately obscure about what they do. You know, when they set that up, it was secret. And that what was that at Jekyll Island? Yeah. So that whole that whole history is uh, frankly pretty suspicious. 
and how that that whole thing is set up. And I think that's one of the reasons why Woodrow Wilson is uh, uh, worthy of all kinds of condemnation. I, I think he may be one of the, well, he's got to be the top five worst presidents. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just one of the reasons. Yeah, but anyway, uh, yeah, I, if, if people don't figure out that the government cannot help them, cannot save them, uh, we're doomed. Mm -hmm. Now, I think I'm actually feeling much more optimistic than I was just six months ago. So how many uh, nullification ordinances or laws uh, have been passed in states, including Montana, by the way, where the states have said we're not going to cooperate. In fact, it would be illegal for our, our people to cooperate with the uh, federal authorities on gun control. Well, you may not remember this. I think I spoke about this in class many times, but uh, Montana legalized medical marijuana uh, some years ago, 15 years ago. And, and the local law enforcement collaborated with the federal government in shutting those down. Well, that's illegal in Montana now and in uh, some, a number of other states. That's actually a very hopeful sign. It's like when California was going to secede over, over uh, the immigration yeah. issue. All right, secede. So secession's okay now because California says it is. Well, yeah. the concept was, you know, uh, before everybody laughed about secession. Well, it's on the table. I'm very, very, the decentralization, that's the answer. Mm-hmm. I've found that on college campuses, like I, I can't agree with leftists all the time about social policies, obviously, and, and uh, social issues, but I, I have really been trying to get at them through the decentral decentralization angle. And I really think that that's what libertarians have to do because I think it's, it's where people can compromise the most. And, and I remember I, I was pointing out, like I was just making this argument because um, uh, so Prince versus United States, I think that was out of Montana, like the, the sheriff Prince, he um, essentially says that the federal government can't commandeer uh, local resources. That's a right. issue. So that's, that's a local issue, right? Like we have the precedent here. And then I, I would point to like Missoula and the sanctuary cities that they have. I'm like, that's another one. We have another precedent here. And then marijuana and like Colorado, like these are, these are democratic issues that you support. Can you see this on principle? Why we would, why we should just support localism and and how this could benefit us all, and we could live in communities that that look like the communities we want to live in, rather than trying to force them on others. Yeah. So uh, I'm absolutely. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. And just this morning, my wife and I were talking about a issue that we were reading some news article about. Uh, did you see where the school board, there was a school board meeting someplace and the, in the meeting, some of the parents apparently said something that the crowd agreed with and the crowd clapped. And so the, the school board uh, decided to call the cops on them. and the, the police came in. I don't know if they're deputies or city police and hauled at least one guy away in handcuffs. Wow. So uh, what I said was, well, first place you've got a local school board so that those people can be voted out and uh and reading the story they probably should be mm -hmm. the second place is that you can deal much more easily with a local law enforcement agency like a deputy sheriff or a sheriff who are subject to uh, elections as well uh than you can with the national uh, say the military or, or uh, uh the fbi or any of those groups a lot easier to work around those guys and it is the, the national groups. And so that local angle is really going to be our savior, I think. Yeah. And then, and the thing is, is people point to like um, the constitution and the supremacy clause. Right. And uh, I mean, if you want to give the answer to that objection, I'll let you try. <laughs> well, yeah. So uh, there is a supremacy clause, and if you read it the way it's been uh, read the last 150 years, uh, you might think it actually 
is something that we have to pay attention to. But I find it fascinating that people who want to uh, read that section of the Constitution as written will have all kinds of interpretations for other parts of the Constitution not as written. Okay, so we're either going to read the whole thing the way it was written or none of it. So that's, that's my first objection to that ridiculous argument. Second thing is the states created the national government. The national government did not create the states. And so as far as I can see, the states can just thumb their nose at the national government uh, because it's a creature of their own making. I, I, I don't buy the supremacy cause for a second. I know there's probably some other uh, more intellectual arguments, but I say to the states like Montana, no, we're not enforcing your gun laws. No, yeah. we're, not, uh, we're not sending uh, any soldiers to your army. We're not going to pay our, uh, the income tax anymore. Those are things I'd love to see. And I think that stuff's coming. Yeah, I do too. And I think that there actually is another objection to it. I think that it has something to do with um, the word, how, how is it phrased? It's something therein, which, and it's referring to, and it's often omitted, like there's often ellipses when, when people write it out and they're <laughs> the part that requires them to follow the constitution. So, so it has something to do with all powers here. Let me see if I can actually find the text because uh, yeah, it's too bad you didn't have a, a camera on because I've got my pocket constitution right here. <laughs> All right. See, this is fun for me. This is this is a fun exercise. Uh, this constitution and laws of the United States which shall be made in pursuance thereof. So in pursuance thereof of the constitution and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States shall be the supreme law of the land and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything in the constitution or laws of any state to the contrary, notwithstanding. Okay. So there's two things where I, I think you're right. When they read this, the constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance of thereof the constitution. Uh, and so if it's an unconstitutional law, then clearly the states don't have to honor uh, as supreme this particular law. Yeah, I think that's very interesting because they also have to account for the vested powers that the federal government has. Because, I mean, if, if they go outside the bounds of those powers, then it's not in pursuant of the Constitution. So I think that that's another area where these people get the supremacy clause wrong. And I think that that's where the authority to nullify comes from is because like, in, in a sense, the federal government can just ignore what, or the states can just ignore what the federal government has done. And then if people say, well, well, the federal government's stronger or something like that, something interesting that I've found is that um, a lot, for a lot of these federal laws, the reason that the anti-commandeering principle is so important that was established in like the Prince versus US case is that the federal government actually relies a lot on localities to enforce their laws. So, I mean, you can just kind of ignore this or a state can just ignore these things and the federal government can't do much. Right. That's absolutely right. And uh, that Jay Prince guy uh, was the sheriff of Valley County there or Hamilton. And uh, it, it seems like there was another sheriff that they went in together on this uh this case, and yet they named it for the J. Prince guy. Um, yeah, anti-commandeering doctrine, um, clearly that makes more sense than having the national government be able to call into service anybody they want. Yeah. You know, and then uh, that also is something, uh, can the national government call in the militia? Well, it can, but do they have to answer? There's another question. Anyway. <laughs> So uh, all kinds of questions where I think the United States government, the general government has, has uh, interpreted the constitution and increased their power over and over and over again uh, to the point where, you know, uh, the president thinks that they can, they can uh, do executive orders. They can pass an executive order and people at the local level have to, have to, uh, respond they have to do it well where's that 
Is that really, is that in the constitution? I don't think that's in the constitution. So anyway. Mr. Deming, it's a living and breathing document. <laughs> yeah. Another, another I'm thing. triggered. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, another thing about th this whole issue, and maybe this is what we'll finish up on, is um, how many times the federal government has threatened to pull funding, because that is a way that maybe they can try to threaten the state, um, especially in a state like Montana, where we, we kind of are pretty dependent on, on federal funding. Um, do you have some of those instances in mind right now? Like, can you, would you be able to recall them? I know they've threatened highway funding, education funding many times. Um, and when, when I've told even leftists about these, these cases, like I know one is about uh, Michelle Obama's uh, food program or whatever, like they, they threatened to pull funding over that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are quite a few that, that you told me about. Well, the, the one that immediately jumps to mind for me is the fiasco that was the um, reasonable and prudent speed limit on our highways, interstate highways. And so since Montana is dependent for, you know, our road construction on federal funds, that was a pretty serious threat when the federal government says, no, you have to have a posted speed limit. Well, what, what difference does it make to the national government? People in DC, if we don't have a posted speed limit on our interstates, what difference does that make to anybody? But that was a threat uh, that I think they were willing to pull our highway funding if we didn't change it over. So we changed it over. You know, that's a silly example, frankly. I don't think it's that important, but it's it just a, an example, as far as I'm concerned, of uh, federal or general government overreach. This is ridiculous. Why would they care? Why should they care? There, there's, I think they, they also did the same with uh, drinking age laws. I think it- But that be, right? Yeah, it was, it was 18, and then they, they forced the same thing um, for us to turn it to 21. Um, they, they threatened to do the same thing with the transgender bathrooms. They would pull education funding. Uh, yeah. And we move pretty quickly on that. And I mean, like these issues aren't like, like maybe the transgender bathroom one is, is more conservative, but there, there are issues like that, that, you know, like if, if you told a leftist that they're going to pull education funding because of this, they're, they're going to freak out. And it's obvious that they're, they're holding that funding hostage. Um, so, I mean, I think that something that Montana really needs to focus on is becoming pretty reliant and sustainable and, and just figure out how to, exist without that funding. Um, and you and I have talked about <laughs> potential uh, courses of action that like a governor or a legislature can can do against like the president if if they try to do that. And one that I've really in entertained is like just, well, then then we don't give you taxes. <laughs> like we'll just reroute our taxes to the treasury. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there is a way to do that. Um, yeah to put the pressure on the federal government, although they don't obviously depend on our tax money. They kind of depend on their printing press to make money. <laughs> but right. but uh, uh, so I think, the, I think Montana should just say, call their bluff. So you may know this, uh, Governor Schweitzer, uh, when they first passed the Real ID Act, do you know about that? I don't remember if we talked about that very much. I know that we pushed it back a lot, but I don't know the politics behind it. So uh, Governor Schweitzer, a Democrat, said to the federal government, no, we're not going to have a real ID. And the reason why is that at the time, Montana's driver's licenses were about as secure as any in the country. And in fact, maybe the most secure. And there's kind of a funny story that's involved at the University of Montana there, but we don't have time to tell it yet. But anyway, so uh, he said, no, well, go ahead. We, we don't have to fly airplanes and the federal government backed off on that real ID. Now it may not have been all governor Schweitzer, but uh, the one thing that I was proud of him for was telling the federal government, no, we're not, we're not doing that. That's an amazing story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't know that, but that, that is awesome. So it, that's proof that we can do it. Right. And, and shit. I, yeah. And 2020, I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I do feel very optimistic and I can't really tell what it is. It's kind of just a lot of things happening at once and it kind of feels like it's in the air, 
but just like the way that culture has received a lot of libertarian voices. I mean, I'm a big Dave Smith fan and he's been all over Fox news recently. And so has Spike Cohen. Um, and then all of these cases of, of states nullifying stuff. It's, it's been, it's been really great to see, but on the other hand, there, there are some more um, scary things like, like Joe Biden the other day pointing out or like announcing this program where you can call your, uh, your family in if, if they're yeah. radicals or something like that and how they define radicals. It, it kind of is defined in a way where it groups in both leftists who oppose capitalism and uh, libertarians and CIA, John Brennan, he, he got on there and on TV and he said he grouped libertarians in with racists and all of this stuff. And yeah. we were part of the insurrection or the quote unquote insurrection at the Capitol. So I'm very op optimistic in, in the power and, and the reaction to the federal government, but there's still going to be a little crackdown. I think you're right, but uh, it depends on how much liberty people have in their hearts. And if they don't have any liberty, then it's, it's all of that is going to work. But, you know, if, if we are really believe in liberty in this country, uh, we'll push back, we'll push back hard. Now, I think there'll be, so the uh, the gun laws, uh, the attempts at getting rid of you know AR-15s and other quote unquote weapons of war, uh, I wonder if that isn't going to be the tipping point for a lot of people. Um, he's been pretty uh, Biden has been pretty um, certain that he's going to try to take away those types of firearms. Now I don't I don't have one, um, and I I'm not that. Uh, personally worried about having to buy one but if i want to get one i should be able to get one and that's a topic for another time but i think that's one of the tipping points that could happen uh people aren't going to stand for that yeah. and today he made an announcement about how um if if you were to take on the federal government you would need jets and you would need much higher uh firepower than you guys do because um and then he and then he made some some comment about how or when the constitution was, was first um, ratified that even then they had certain regulations on firearms. And he said, even back then they couldn't own cannons. And I actually recalled right then uh, in one of my, my presentations in, in we, the people, I, I let this slip probably in, at a inopportune time and it came off pretty, pretty bad, but I made a comment about James Madison's a letter of Mark to a privateer who had a ship with a cannon on it. Um, so Joe Biden said that even in, in the founders days, you couldn't own a cannon. Um, and, and there's literal proof because James Madison wrote a letter of Mark to this privateer and he wasn't necessarily licensing him to um, have the cannon and possess the cannon. What he was doing was he was giving him the ability to uh, capture British ships and stuff like that. So right. a lot of people will say that the, the letter of Mark only granted him authority to have the cannon, but he already did. Like that, and that's enough proof to say like people at that time had these weapons and, and what they expected was that you would have the same weaponry as, as the government or at least enough to keep the government from, from infringing on your rights. That's absolutely the case. And in fact, um, I, I know we're going to have to go here pretty quick, but uh, I, I, I can't leave without saying this. So the, the firearms, the firepower commensurate with uh, fighting a standing army, which virtually all of the founders agreed, all of them agreed, was a threat to liberty. Standing army is a threat to, threat to liberty. So whatever it takes to counter that threat is what we have to have. That's just no question about it. I mean, <laughs> you can't argue that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Joe Biden is is completely and historically and conveniently wrong on that issue. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're <laughs> definitely running out of time, and I I could keep talking with you, and and every time we talk, we we have conversations like this. So if if there's anything else that you want to say, and if if you want to just um tell the audience anything, please do. And then we can let you go. And I'll have you back on as, as soon as possible. 
Yeah, I'd be happy to. This is kind of, kind of fun for me. And uh, just hanging out and visiting, uh, that's also pretty gratifying for an old teacher. So thank you. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. It's the weekend and we can let go. It's the full send.